gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And for the second time on Theology Gals, we have Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Shoemaker on, and we're really excited um, about their new book, Jesus and Gender. And it really hits on so many things that we have talked about on this podcast. So just for starters, and there may be people that didn't listen to our first episode with you, I will link that in the episode notes. Please listen to that if you haven't on their book, Worthy. Um, but could you each just kind of give a little intro about who you are and maybe a little bit about why you wrote this book? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Theology Gals. I'm really, really happy to be with you today. Um, I am uh, I, I live in Southern California. I have lived here really practically my whole life. I'm married uh, almost 50 years. I have three kids and six grandkids. Uh, I have written a number of books. Um, what I wanted to do uh, was really take a look at um, how the gospel uh, would impact the, a discussion about gender. And um, that desire to talk about the gospel, I wrote Because He Loves Me about 12 years ago. And since then, I've been trying to ask that question uh, across a broad swath of disciplines, like, you know, if the gospel is supposed to be central, then what does that mean about parenting? What does it mean about counseling? What does it mean about how I read the Bible? What does, and now I'm trying to answer the question, Eric and I are trying to answer the question, what does it mean about how we relate to one another as sister and brother? I'm Eric Schumacher, and I... I'm an associate pastor uh, in central Iowa. I've uh, been married to Jenny for 
enough years that we're losing track. I think it's 24 this summer and uh, we have five kids and I, you know, started having a journey several years ago, um, just wanting to rethink my views about man and woman and gender and was concerned that I had basically swallowed a whole lot of theology that was basically, um, I just, I just ate up whatever was fed to me without thinking critically about it. And I began to have some discomfort with how I was seeing it applied and played out in churches and relationships and not really feeling like that's what I saw in the Bible. And so just began to pay attention to what the Bible did and didn't say about men and women, particularly about women. And that led to the book worthy, uh, with Elise and, um, that led to our, our podcast worthy and really is new book, Jesus and gender. Um, it's, it, it's been, uh, an output of Elise and I thinking about these things, you know, what does it mean to put the gospel at the center of male and female relationships? And really what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the perfect human being and that every believer both man and woman are being conformed into the same image. And what does that mean for our relationships? So it's, it's been fun and challenging um, to think through. Um, thank you for that. I, I'm so glad to have you all on today. And, um, you know, I was thinking, at least as you were talking about the books that you've written, um, I really appreciated your book, uh, Give Them Grace. Uh, when my, especially when my little ones were very little, mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was very encouraging for me. So I just wanted Thank to give you. you that little note. Um, and I really appreciated this book, uh, Jesus and Gender. I enjoyed reading it or actually listening to it. Um, one of the, the benefits of working the way I am right now is I can put audiobooks on while I'm doing paperwork mm -hmm. and, and kind of get two things done. So uh, it was fun to hear your voices. Um, and of course, I hear your voices with the, the podcast, but it's fun to hear your voices read your words, which is I always like it when authors get to read their own books. Mm -hmm. um, so from the beginning of the book, you reframe the discussion of gender around the gospel, like you were mentioning, Elise. And so you emphasize our relationships as sisters and brothers in Christ. How does that change our conversations? Yeah, I, um, so if, if in fact... Um, if in fact the gospel is supposed to inform our relationships as sisters and brothers, then when we start off the conversation asking the question, who gets to be boss? We've missed it. Um, because as Christians, I think we're told, and not just one time, by our Lord that the desire to be boss is, is not something that really even should be talked about among his followers. So then, if in fact, I'm changing the dialogue away from authority and submission, as, as you so beautifully wrote about, Rachel, if I'm changing and it's not supposed to be a conversation about authority and submission, then it's supposed to be a, a, a conversation about my relationship because of what Christ has done, which is 
laid down his life, didn't think that equality with God was something to be exploited, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Then, when I look at my relationship with my sisters and brothers and with Eric, for example, then what I need to be asking is, how can I have the same attitude which, you know, after all, is what we're told to do in Philippians 2.5, have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus, and this is the attitude that I need to lay down my life. So, you know, if, if I'm going to have the same attitude that I had as a non-Christian, then I'm going to fight with my sisters and brothers to be in charge. We all do. But if I'm being informed by that, particularly by that passage in Philippians 2, and then by the life of Jesus, how he over and over again loved his neighbor and laid down his life, then that needs to change everything about our discussion. I mean, at least I thought it did. You know, like Elise was saying that uh, if Christ has laid down his life for us, that changes the whole discussion. Uh, you know, thinking back to Christ being, you know, really uh, the the perfect human being, we see the fullness of God in him, and he should for- inform uh, every relationship and um, how we live and all th- things, you know, as we think about about gospel-centeredness. At, at, at the heart of that is putting the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection at the center of all things. And that's really um, what it means to relate to each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's that's why we've taken on uh, Philippians 2 as sort of the the central text of our book, that that mindset of Christ where he had he had power, he had authority, he had wealth. Um, and he didn't exploit them to serve his own interests, but he humbled himself, became a slave unto death so that he could serve us and uh, see us flourish. And that's that's really what it means to be a man or a woman is to take on, to have the mind of Christ is really what it means to be uh, a mature man or woman uh, as a Christian. And that should inform every relationship that we have. You know, Elise, I've read your books for years, and mm. um, one thing I appreciate about this book from from both of you is the theme that's throughout so many of your books, which is the gospel, whether it's Give Them Grace or Comforts from the Cross, which I've given to so many friends that are going through difficult times, or mm. Comforts from Romans, and that's one thing I've always appreciated about you. Um you mentioned that who is boss, and I kind of wanted to ask a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. And um, we talked, and, and you mentioned it a little bit in this book, but we talked on the last time we had you on about the Genesis 3.16. And I have my eyes have just been so opened how that kind of popular and complementarian circles view, it, like mm-hmm. all of the practical implications of that. And I, I do think it would be helpful um, Eric, you did such a wonderful job last time kind of explaining the issue with that common complementarian perspective on Genesis 3.16, and, and I'd love for you to explain it again. 
Yeah, I would definitely uh, be glad to because I think that is such an important uh, verse. Where and the, and the context is um, uh, they've fallen in the garden, they've uh, partaken of the forbidden fruit, and the Lord has uh, you know discovered this, and He is speaking to them and laying out the consequences of this rebellion. And the Lord says to the woman, uh, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And the interpretation that we sometimes get is um, that, well, ESV went ahead and they made their permanent text, your desire will be contrary to your husband. And and that reflects an interpretation that says her desire there is something that is negative. It's a desire to uh, overtake him and to uh, usurp him and to dominate him. And the, and the argument is made that um, that desire and rule uh, in the next chapter with Cain, desire, you know, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you and you must rule over it. And so they say because sin has this negative, overtaking, destructive desire, that's what desire means here. And, and the word is not inherently negative or destructive or usurping at all. In fact, it's only used two other places in the Bible, and the one is Genesis 4, and the other is the Song of Songs, which is used for romantic uh, desire for the the desire one spouse has for the other, and so which is not destructive, but is is loving and tender and right and good, and so you know with only two other uses in the scripture, we we really need to let the immediate context be our guide to what it means, and and what you see happening in. Uh, these consequences that are laid out is that the the uh, mandate that's given in Genesis 1 when God creates male and female in his image and they're called upon to uh, fill the earth and subdue it, exercise dominion over it. Uh, they, you, you see in these consequences that the people, the humans, will still want to do these things. That mandate remains. They still have good desires, such as um, she's going to bear children. Uh, that is a good thing. But now um, her body and the world is not going to cooperate with uh, having children uh, easily. It's it's going to be a painful effort, and labor pains are going to be intensified and likewise, uh, they're still going to want to eat. They're still going to want to cultivate the ground uh, to grow grain and and plants of the fields and uh, um, you know get bread. And but now it's going to be a painful labor uh, to work the earth and to subdue it and exercise dominion over it. There's going to be thorns and thistles, and even their bodies as they want to live as God's image bearers on earth. Are going to return to dust. So you have this pattern of a positive activity or desire uh, met by a, a painful uh, consequence. And so in this sentence, uh, 
her desiring her husband is a good thing. She wants to join him and to cooperate with him in uh, ruling the earth and filling it. Uh, But instead of cooperating with her in ruling the earth, he's going to rule over her. And they weren't made, uh, human beings weren't made to rule over each other. They were made to rule together. And so obviously him ruling over her is is the negative there. And that means uh, her desire can't be a negative. It has to be a positive. And, and when you turn that around and you turn it into women by their fallen nature are prone to resist and rebel against and try to usurp male authority in ways that males are not prone to do that. This is, this is especially uh, the desire of women. And when you're taught that, then you turn and you look at your female neighbors and you think of them differently. If you're a pastor and this is what you've been trained in in seminary, then you go to a church to be a shepherd and you pretty much need to be suspicious of the women in the church because their fallen nature is going to drive them to disobey you, rebel against you, not want to cooperate with you, to usurp you and take your place. If you're a man going into marriage, you need to be suspicious of your wife uh, because her her desire is going to be seductive and... Um, manipulative and deceitful and all these sorts of things. And and that even bleeds over into your relationships with women in the church and in the world at large. They are all suspect. They're all threats. They're all prone to seduce you and to destroy you. And when that's, that's your default mentality against your neighbor, um, you're not, you're not going to love them well. And, and I think that while the people who interpret it that way are well-intended um, and I think striving to be faithful to the scripture. I, I think that that interpretation in the end bears some bad fruit. Yeah, that, that was so helpful. I think that's just so foundational to this whole conversation. And I've seen kind of the negative effects of how that plays out. Uh, so the, one idea that's out there that's talked about a lot in some circles, they talk about this Christic manhood and it's, it's in a bizarre way, you know, it's like hunting and I don't know what um, those sorts of, that's how I see it talked about on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I've never even really seen it much talked about, um, about women, but could you both kind of talk about what does it mean to be Christic men and women? Yeah. Um <laughs> We were looking for a word that would um, demonstrate or illustrate the kind of hope that we had for male and female relationships. And so we decided to use the word Christic, but in the past, that word that word has been used primarily to talk, as you said, Colleen, about, you know, guys who like to shoot ducks or something. I don't, I don't know. Um, and, and that, and then, you know, then that would lead you to ask the question, well, so when you're looking at like, let's say the fruit of the spirit, is that feminine? Is that, 
is that Christic? Is the fruit of the spirit, you know, gentleness, kindness, meekness, patience, love, is, is that Christic? So, what we wanted to do was to try to reframe the conversation and say, all right, if what we're interested in is having the gospel inform the way we think about one another as men and women and the kinds of structures that we build as men and women, then what we want those things to do would be to reflect and relate to Christ, which is what the word Christic means, to be like Christ, to reflect Christ, to be related to Christ, so that we move past a, maybe a trope that would say, uh, yeah, well, men are supposed to be like Christ because, you know, he's kind of a he-man which I, I honestly don't know where they, um, you know, they talk about Jesus turned over tables. Okay. Um, we want to move past that and say, no, actually what it means to be Christic is to be people who uh, look at the fruit of the spirit, who demonstrate that wonderful, uh, those wonderful qualities that we see in Colossians 3 about putting on a heart of compassion and kindness and forgiving one another, being that. But, you know, in the past, the question has always been, well, if women are supposed to be, no, if men are supposed to be like Jesus, then who are women supposed to be like? And and I, I think in Catholicism, there has been an impulse to say that, well, okay, so women are supposed to be like Mary because women, and I'm not saying it would be wrong to be like Mary in some ways, um, but to just, to just say, no, actually, both women and men are to seek to be Christic. So we wanted to take a word that I think has been used improperly in some ways, um, you know, that whole Christic, you know, going to take my rifle and go shoot something, um, that sort of idea and say, no, actually what it means to be Christic would be to be all of those things that we see in the fruit of the spirit and, uh, and also to be brave and to be strong and to love truth. And those are not in themselves inherently male. Um, we certainly have in scripture numbers of women who are brave, not the least of which would be, you know, of course, Deborah, but uh, Mary, hello. Um, but, but also the Hebrew, uh, the midwives, the Egyptian midwives. I mean, how brave were they? So, you know, what we want to do is, is move past the stereotype that being Christic means you look like a he-man and then being a Christian woman, not really sure what that's supposed to look like, probably just be like Mary or something. Yeah, I, I echo everything that Elise just said about that and... One of the things I, I love about this sort of Christic paradigm, you know, manhood and womanhood that are both informed and defined by Christ, 
is the way in which it frees us to both minister to each other and to be ministered to by each other. Um, you know, a key verse for us is Hebrews 2, 17, speaking of Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. And that 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 concept that there are not two separate natures, a male nature and a female nature, but there's one human nature, and that's how Christ could become like his brothers and sisters in every respect. And, and if Christ can become like his sisters in every respect, that means there can be women who show us what Jesus is like. And, and, and you know, you're probably familiar with how far too often you go to a, a woman's retreat or a woman's event. And that's the only place that Esther or Ruth are pulled out in the Bible because, you know, they're the they're the books with central female characters, and so obviously that's what women need to learn about. Um, no, it. I mean, there's there's lots of problems with with that mindset, but 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 one is is that the the females in the Bible are really just examples for females, and I don't know if that's ever said, but sometimes it comes across that way. And a woman like Ruth, I, I would argue that she is a type of Christ. She is the embodiment in her story of the Old Testament law. She she shows us what it looks like to be a person who's characterized by Hesed, uh, God's steadfast love and and faithfulness in the way that she loves Naomi, and. And I, as a man, should be able to look at that and learn from her. Or the Proverbs 31 woman, who is, uh, you know, she's being described as the kind of wife that uh, King Lemuel will need. And if the king is Jesus and the church is the bride, then I, I, I need to learn from her what it looks like to be wed to Christ and what kind of person um, I should be. And and it also means that, you know, women in my own life, I can look to uh, as examples of what it means to live as a Christian. Um, I You know, I can look at Elise and I can see all the ways that she's been bold and courageous and, uh, you know, servant-hearted in the way that she's gone about teaching and writing for the last 40 years. And and I should be able to learn from that as a man. Um, so just as Elise was saying, you know, uh, these mas- traditionally masculine characteristics, um, there's nothing inherently masculine about them. It, they, they're, they equally apply to... Um, to, to women, and I, sh- I should be able to look at the, the women who are commended in Scripture and learn from them what it looks like to be a mature and faithful follower of Jesus. Um, one of the things I really liked in the discussion that you have um, kind of early on in the book talking about you know, Christic and what it means to be a Christic men and women, that you make a contrast between, uh, I think you called it David-esque, uh, manhood versus mm-hmm. a, a Christic 
manhood and masculinity. And uh, especially as David is one of those that gets hold up, held up mm-hmm. in these discussions as, you know, this is, you know, what it means to be a godly man and, and masculine and you know, the hunter, the, you know, the king. Mm-hmm. But could you pr- explain the difference that you made there, but in the contrast and kind of expand on that? Sure. Um, thank you. You know, when you when you look at David, and uh, yes, David, of course, was a a king, and Israel loved David, and and God raised David up. But David's not the king we need, because even though David um, was uh, certainly used by God and loved God. Uh, David's not the kind of king that women need. Um, David uh, took numbers of wives. David, and of course, he's a king, and that's the context. Um, But David also took another man's wife and used his power to rape her and then kill her husband. And so if we want to say, you know, let's talk about... uh, the difference between the kind of king that that David was and the kind of king Jesus is, who would never, who would never have uh, exploited his power, and that again is is what that passage in in Philippians two talks about that Jesus didn't exploit what was rightfully his. Jesus didn't exploit his power. And yet, that's what David did. And so, we've got, again, this idea that what it means to be a godly man is somehow to, you know, shoot bows and arrows, which, okay, that's fine. That's not, though, what it means to be a man of godly character. And Jesus is the one, and I I love this because, you know, Rachel, I've done I've done work just thinking about the incarnation and how when Jesus was a young man, uh, before he even stepped onto his uh, the stage of his ministry, he was surrounded by girls in Nazareth, and you know he never would have exploited his power to use one of them for himself. He never would look at a woman and say, yeah, I'm stronger than her and I'm going to take what I want. There is a massive difference between David as king and Jesus as king. And he loves his bride and he protects her and he will never use her or abuse her in any way just because he's got power. And that, I, I think, is, you know, we, we've got to reframe the way we think about people in Scripture to, you know, be honest. I know, and, and you know this too, Rachel, that, you know, if you happen to say a year ago uh, in, on social media that uh, David raped Bathsheba, the pushback you would get, because how, how dare you? criticize this man who was a man of faith, a a man even after God's own heart, 
how how can you how can you even say that he would do such a thing? And yet, what we realize is that um, David had power, and he exploited his power. Jesus, on the other hand, had power, and he never exploited it to harm anyone else. And to me, that makes all the difference in the gender discussions. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, You know, and even talking earlier about this suspicion of women, like Elise pointed out, the way that Bathsheba is treated as though she's complicit in this whole thing, that really goes against a, you know, a careful examination of the the biblical text itself, because uh, nowhere in the Bible is Bathsheba ever condemned for sexual relationships with David. Um, she's depicted as a holy woman. What she's, you know, when when he's at home, when kings should be going out to war, um, what he sees her doing, she's not just taking a bath. She's keeping covenant because this is her ritual washing to cleanse herself after her menstrual cycle. And so him seeing her bathing, he's he's seeing her keeping covenant with God, upholding the law. And and David is this man with this command to be a protector and keeper of the nation, and he's not out at war. Uh, he is being a, a predator who is prowling here for another man's wife. And she's a loyal subject to the king. And, and she, you know, um, she didn't have any choice in whether she came, you know. Um, basically, what David commands is go and get her and, and bring her back. Uh, but, in, but what we see here, you know, when, we, when we're talking about David-esque... Uh, use of authority, uh, David-esque manhood being opposed to Christic manhood, what David is using his authority and his societal status to do is to destroy others for his own benefit. And that's the kind of thing that we see uh, all over the place. You know, that's what fed into uh, chattel slavery in America, where people used their status and their authority to destroy human beings to benefit themselves. That's what we see in Larry Nassar uh, in the you know U.S. gymnastics sex abuse scandal. He's a trusted man who has a uh, high status and lots of respect and has access to people, and he uses it uh, for his own sick and twisted pleasure while he you know is is destroying the lives of of young women and uh, and and that's not what we see in Christ again and again uh when when we hear Christ talked about there is this voluntary humiliation for the sake of others he is shedding his blood, he's laying down his life so that others can flourish. He He's dying on the cross beneath the wrath of God so that his bride, the church, can be brought to life, can be healed from all harm, can have every tear wiped away, 
uh, can be healed of every disease and can have life abundantly and everlasting. That is what it looks like to be a Christic person who has status, authority, power, wealth, is that you never exploit it for your own interests because you count you're, you're concerned about the interests of others and not your own and so you you use it or you lay it all down so that other people can flourish that's that's what christic authority looks like this ends part one of our discussion with elise and eric because the episode is quite long, we decided to split it into two parts. The second part is actually longer, but I wanted to uh, split it at a, a good place so that the conversation flows. So thank you so much for joining us. Check out Eric and Elise's book, which is linked in the episode notes, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>